Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Writer, filmmaker, and journalist Tarek Ali joins us to talk about his new book, The Dilemmas of Lenin, written in this centenary year of the Russian Revolution and aptly published this month of April, exactly 100 years since Lenin's explosive April Theses, the call to revolution after the successful February Revolution brought down the Tsar but didn't see the Soviets or councils assume power. Tarek's book brings out an unknown Lenin, one who loved Latin literature and classical music and who was profoundly influenced by the political convulsions of the time that intimately affected his own family. History sees Lenin as a ruthless dictator, so it may be surprising to see his commitment to universal democracy from below put forward in his key writings from 1917. We'll ask Tarek to unravel the myths and slanders about Lenin's role in history, how to, to assess Lenin's ideas and actions, and ask what relevance they have for today. All this when our program returns in just a moment. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Tarek Ali with us. He's a writer, a filmmaker, a journalist, and he's joining us to talk about his new book, The Dilemmas of Lenin, which was written in the centenary year of the Russian Revolution and aptly published this month of April, exactly 100 years since Lenin's explosive April Theses, which was the call to action to revolution after the successful February Revolution in Russia brought down the Tsar, but didn't see the Soviets or the councils a power. Tarek's book brings out an unknown Lenin, one who loved Latin literature and classical music and who was profoundly influenced by the political convulsions of the time that intimately affected his own family. His brother was executed at age 19 for plotting to kill the Tsar. History often sees Lenin as a ruthless dictator. In fact, that's required for discrediting the entire revolution. So it may be surprising to see in this book his commitment to universal democracy from below, uh, put forward in his key writings from 1917 that Tarek spends a lot of time talking about. And we'll get Tarek to unravel the myths and the slanders about Lenin's role in history and how to assess his ideas and actions and see what relevance they have for today. And as I said, Tarek is a writer and a filmmaker. He's got more than a dozen books of history and politics, five novels, scripts for stage and screen. He's an editor of New Left Review and famously a street-fighting man. This book is called The Dilemmas of Lenin, Terrorism, War, Empire, Love, and Revolution. It'll be published next week by Verso Press. Hi, Susie. Good to be with you. Well, very good to be with you and very pleased to have been able to read the advanced copy of this book. And it's a great read. And all of your love of literature and poetry comes through. So you, you give us a Lenin that we haven't normally seen. Maybe I should start with that side, the unfamiliar Lenin, his love of literature and Latin and chess and the impact of his brother's death. Well, these are things which people don't talk about, and for a variety of reasons. One reason is what the Soviet leadership did to Lenin after he died. This was a decision taken by the Politburo to mummify him, to display his body in public, to transform him into a Byzantine saint. It's very much a tradition of the Orthodox Church. And uh, even though some people on the Politburo were not in favor of it, they couldn't fight it because it would have seemed very sectarian. But the point is this, that Lenin's widow, Nadia Krupskaya, 
his two sisters pleaded with the leadership, uh, which included, of course, Stalin, who was a prime mover, uh, and said he would have hated it, he loathed all this sort of deification, please bury him underneath the Kremlin walls where other, other leaders and uh, activists have been buried. Do not do this to him. But they did do this to him, and it was a, a clever move because they could use Lenin, especially in the Stalin years, uh, rebuild him as someone he wasn't, forge photographs with him, which they did, uh, Stalin in particular did. He, I mean, he, he met Lenin, of course, uh, quite a lot at Politburo meetings, but to show that they were friends, a lot of photography was uh, faked, uh, fake paintings were done to show that there's a total continuity between Lenin, his thought, and what existed in the Soviet Union in the 30s. Now, two different groups of people believed this. One was the Stalinist leadership in Russia, and the second was, of course, the West. So on this, they had an unholy alliance, as exactly. many other things, but on this in particular, because the Stalinists said, what we are doing is a continuation of the work of Comrade Lenin, and what the West and its leaders and ideologues said, yes, Lenin is the basis of what is going on in, in the Soviet Union now. So these two giant state and ideological apparatuses combined to make people forget the real Lenin. And so underneath it all, there lay a very different political leader and theoretician. And I just thought that given its dicentenary, it was time to write a book bringing that Lenin to life. And uh, I'm very glad you like it, Susie. I <laughs> hope, you know, younger generations will too. And see that uh, returning and reading some of Lenin's work is uh, going to be extremely useful for them in the world in which we live. I wanted to just comment on a couple of things that you said, Tarek, and one is that, of course, the monstrosity that became the Soviet Union and had very little to do with the ideas of Marx or Lenin or Trotsky managed, you know, to be functional for both sides in the Cold War and to, as you say, put an equal sign between Marxism, communism, socialism on the one hand and dictatorship, Stalinism, terror on the other. And the first time I went to the Soviet Union, you know, I was surprised to see the long lines around, uh, you know, know. to go to the, the tomb. But then actually I waited in that line, not on that trip, another one, and saw the mummified Lenin and thought about just what you said, how horrified he would have been. But then also, you know, I teach in a Catholic college where every room has a crucifix. And as, <laughs> you, as you go through schools and parks and apartment buildings in the former Soviet Union, there were Lenin statues everywhere, so much so that it just kind of wanted, you know, you almost wanted to vomit. And I mm. thought after my first trip there that it'll take posterity to sort out Lenin. And now I think that's my question. Do you think that enough time has passed and that right now with this hundred years that, that it's time to bring out this unfamiliar Lenin? Well, it seems to be for some uh, Susie, I think, you know, there's a great deal of hostility, of course, within the mainstream, but the viciousness is gone because the Soviet Union doesn't exist. I mean, I was frankly speaking uh, very delighted, but also quite surprised that the New York Times asked me to do an op-ed piece uh, 
on Lenin, which is in, published in their international edition and is on their website. And I effectively defended my views as uh, written in the book, and it was published without a murmur. This suggested a few changes, but these right. are really quite minor. So I hope that this indicates that serious attention is going to be a bit to his thought and some of his key writings. I mean, the April thesis where he dramatically changes his point of view on what is needed, State and Revolution where he says what we need is a version of the Paris Commune, and of course one of the key things in the Paris Commune was elections from below on every single level, so much so that the great... French painter Gustave Courbet organized the artists in every quarter in Paris who elected delegates who were in charge of deciding how Paris was to look. It's, it was a totally democratic process and argue the case, etc. This is the model Lenin wanted, and you know some people later after his death said that, well, the Civil War was awful, but during even during the Civil War, we had certain freedoms which reminded us of the Paris Commune. There was a sense of equality. Anyone could say what they wanted within the ranks of the army and the party. We could argue with the commissars, etc. That whole experience <clears throat> was wiped out by the, the Stalin dictatorship imposed on the Soviet Union, and uh, it created this opinion that it all originated with Lenin. So the old, old debate, was there total continuity between Lenin and what came after, or none at all? And I think you, you can't say either. I think there were elements of continuity, we can't deny that, but usually of decisions taken during emergency situations. Right. But <clears throat> but as far as what the old man wrote in his last years, and, and Susie, the most moving thing was going through his last writings over mm. the last two years. When he's in a rage, he's been crippled by a stroke. He's looking suddenly at a distance because he's no longer allowed by doctors to attend government, governmental meetings or party meetings. And he looks at what they've accomplished and he says, oh, my God. This is not going well. And his big argument in state and revolution that a socialist state, a socialist republic has to destroy all the remnants of Tsarism, its bureaucracy, the great Russian chauvinism, etc., etc., he says, it seems to me sometimes that the old that even though we won the revolution, the old Tsarist bureaucracy is still in power and infecting Bolshevik apparatchiks and leaders with what it used to be like, and this shocks them. So he, he is preparing a set of sharp documents to try and change this, changing the uh, uh, structures of the Politburo, giving more powers to the Control Commission, saying that Stalin should be removed as General Secretary of the party, saying what has gone wrong and why he, and this was, you know, what we, many of us have been saying for years, that socialism, given where it happened and took place, is always an approximation. You can't say this is socialism. You, you, you're striving towards it. 
Lenin writes this very clearly. And I'd like to just inter- interject okay, that you sorry, cannot... Yeah. No, it's fine. You've just said so much, Tarek Ali, and we're talking about your new book, The Dilemmas of Lenin. But you, you brought out you know, some of the beautiful writings at the end of his life that are also very angry and worried about where the beloved revolution is heading. And there's this notion that, you know, for people who were Marxists, that there was no separation between socialism and democracy, that socialism was, in fact, the most complete form of democracy. And and I was very moved, and I'd like you to go back maybe for a second on this, in your book, because there's a lot that comes out that we don't know, that the old anarchist, Prince Kropotkin, met Lenin when he returned uh, to uh, the then Soviet Union, and the anarchists were about to be banned, but he came to Moscow and met with him, you say in May 1919, Mm. and complained about bureaucracy, and Lenin answered, we're always against officialdom everywhere. And I, I found that incredible because what you just had to say about his preoccupations at the end of his life seem to have always been with him. Absolutely. And I think he, he was quite fond of Kropotkin and he was quite fond of some of the anarchist uh, militants and activists. How could he not be, Susie? Because they had dominated um, Russian politics for the whole of the 19th century. I mean, it wasn't Marxism that was dominant. It was anarchism. Right. And the first chapter of the book actually explains that in some detail. This was the ideology the young people liked. This was the, these were the ideas of uh, Kropotkin and Bakunin, which they adopted. And this led them <clears throat> to a form of anarcho-terrorism because they said there's nothing left for us to do. And in a number of, it's very interesting, in some of Len, in some of Karl Marx's correspondence with Russians like Chernyshevsky, and of course in his talks with Bakunin, he says that I am of course completely opposed to terrorism in general because it's a distraction from building mass movements and parties, etc., etc., et winning over the majority of the working class. But in the Russian case, says Marx, there is an argument since everything is blocked. And when young people say the only way to unblock it is to blow up the oppressors, I understand that. You can't build a strategy around it, but I do understand that. And quite a lot of the women who became active at that time were middle-class women, very well-educated or in the case of Sofia, uh, Sofia uh, Perovskaya, who uh, blew up uh, one of the czars, she was actually the daughter of the Governor General of Petersburg. I mean, the senior bureaucrat <laughs> who actually knew where the czar went, when he went, where he walked, so she organized everything. She was the main organizer, and of course, she was hanged for it, the first woman to be hanged by the czarist autocracy. So, Lenin knew this, he grew up in it, his brother had, um, you know, mistakenly got involved with a tiny anarchist group at the, when anarchism itself was collapsing at, and, mm. and at the end of its life, and he only wrote the leaflets, and the prosecutor in the court said to him, uh, Alexander Ulyanov, we know what you have done. And Ulyanov said, Alexander Ulyanov, Lenin's brother, Mm. Sasha said, 
Yes, you know that I've written the leaflets, but I take full responsibility for the entire action. I mean, there was a nobility there. He didn't need to do that, and had he not done that, he might well have been given the prison sentence. So Lenin, growing up in this uh, milieu, knew it all, and one of the first things he did was to go and see a lot of these anarchists and old anarchist militants. Krupskaya writes quite coyly in Memories of Lenin that we never went through a town when Vladimir Ilyich said, okay, I must now go and see A, B, C, D, E, because they're still alive. And these were always old anarchist militants. So this habit remained with him. I was just going to say, you know, as you brought out the earlier tactics that Lenin later um, and the uh, and the rest of the Bolsheviks, of course, turned against the tactic of using terror. I don't know if you know, but I'm sh- it's important for our, I'm sure you do, for our listeners, that this sparked a conversation worldwide on the tactic. And uh, Eugene Debs and Big Bill Haywood here in the United States weighed in and talked about that, you know, you, direct action is okay, but it has to be by the workers' movement. And, and of course, this is the position that Lenin, of course, adopted later on as well but i was you know you've mentioned the paris commune a few times and maybe our listeners don't know what you know that entailed but i'd like you to sort of explain the paris commune uh, essentially arose like many other revolutions in history arose out of the defeat suffered by the french ruling class at the hands of the prussians and the germans uh, napoleon the third made a huge error in provoking a conflict with the Germans and Bismarck and gang were waiting. So this defeat inflicted on the French armies, they fled to Versailles. The Parisians, the workers especially, and the artisans and the intellectuals said, we don't accept this surrender and let us liberate Paris and hold it and fight the Prussians. Uh, we don't want to be occupied either by Napoleon or the Prussians. You know, here you see echoes of Lenin's position during World War One. Mm. Neither side. You know, we're not going to support either side in the First World War. You first saw glimmers of that in the Paris Commune, <clears throat> and they took over. They defeated the forces of reaction. The reactionary armies gathered in Versailles, and you had the first big outbreak of what we can only call, uh, you know, workers and popular democracy, because they were not all workers. There were many, many citizens involved who were small artisans, who had little workshops, artists, writers. Uh, you know, Rambo wrote a poem describing going at it as a teenager through the Paris Commune, which is an incredibly uh, uh, moving poem. <clears throat> so all this was going on, and then the Paris Commune electrified everyone by saying we're going to elect our own representatives from below, because democracy did not exist at that time anywhere. Germany was probably the most advanced, but here too, a a powerful emergency law had been put into motion to try and keep the social democrats uh, uh, at uh, at a distance. So this democracy from blow excited everyone, and these representatives went to the assembly 
the local assembly and the all Paris assembly and made their voices heard. And given that, you know, the 1815 had seen the big triumph of reaction, not unlike 1991 uh, in our own time, and the, the Vienna consensus was not too dissimilar to the Washington consensus of the 90s, where they said, we must make sure that wherever revolution rises, wherever opposition forces uh, develop, they have to be crushed immediately, because we're at that stage of development, we can't take these uh, risks. And then 1848 erupted with revolutions and demands for national self-determination all over Europe, defeated. Uh, and then you had the outbreak of the Paris Commune. And this was very close to the hearts and the minds of revolutionaries all over the world. The message went out as far as the Philippines. Look what's happening in Paris. Look what's they're, what they're doing. <clears throat> and from 1871 onwards, you began to see the development of a current which was you know, proto-Marxist. Marx himself felt, you know, he supported the commune completely, but felt that a huge number of tactical mistakes had been committed due to inexperience, which could have been stopped. And those people who try and differentiate Lenin from Marx, Marx is acceptable because he's suddenly very fashionable after 2008 again, but oh no, not Lenin, find that actually what Marx said on the Paris Commune was very, very similar to what Lenin was going to say later. So that was the Paris Commune, and it left its mark. And, you know, we have to uh, remember remember that. And the other thing about Lenin and the, and the state that was created in 1917 is that you know, this again people want to underplay, is that all the Western alliance, the Entente powers, the United States, one of the first meetings that took place in the United States during that wretch Woodrow Wilson's uh, rule, uh, consisted of the hardcore people who would run American intelligence for years to come. I mean, I don't know how many uh, American citizens are aware of this, but two young people uh, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, as 20-somethings, were present at that meeting to decide how to defeat the Russian Revolution. So and Britain was involved. Right. Other European powers were involved. 22 armies, backed by the big powers of the Western Alliance, were trying to defeat the Russians, and that left a very deep mark on that uh, revolution. All this I sort of I explain, <clears throat> I explain at length. But also the, the big question is, Susie, is that you need an understanding of politics. And what Lenin teaches us in that generation, many of them, uh, the same. And Marx, he wasn't just a sort of high-party economist. Hmm. These were political people. They understood that without politics, nothing could move forward. And Lenin was, of course, in this sense, a genius, as even his enemies acknowledged. Absolutely 
absolutely crystal clear. Not, not painting defeats as victories, but saying that victories were possible if we did A, B, and C. I'm speaking with Tarek Ali, and we're talking about his book, The Dilemmas of Lenin, Terrorism, War, Empire, Love, and Revolution. It's published by Verso Press. I'm Susie Wiseman. Tarek, this is a very good way to kind of jump into it, and I'm so glad that in the book you decide to really go through the history so that people can contextualize what happened and how the revolution came, you know, how... In fact, advanced the revolution was, not only for its time, but for all time. And maybe we should just jump back because we are in April. And April was that famous uh, April thesis. Lenin comes back from exile and lands at the Finland station. And, you know, just to contextualize, there's already been the February revolution that was spontaneous with workers, you know, pouring into the streets. And your account of it is just wonderful. that That overthrew the Tsar, but because there was vacillation, maybe you should take it up, the Soviets did not proclaim their power and instead a weak provisional government came into power. It was a very free time, but on the other hand, the revolution was not yet finished. So what happened when Lenin got there? Well, when Lenin got there, the Soviets were just being assembled. Uh, Some existed, uh, not all over the country, but in all the main centers. This was the model. Uh, There was no... Parliament, the Duma was not respected at all, and because of the experience of 1905, a dress rehearsal for the revolution that Lenin called it, when Soviets first sprang up spontaneously, and none of the parties were strong in them, they were genuinely spontaneous, liberatory, etc., Many people realize that this should be the model of our democracy, a Soviet democracy, which had a very different meaning to what was later ascribed to it. So when Lenin arrives, it's April, at the Finland station in Petrograd, he is greeted by an official delegation from the Soviet, led by the liberal and moderate parties, and effectively Chekse, a right Menshevik, says, we welcome you back, Comrade Lenin, on behalf of the Petrograd Soviet, uh, but we urge you to understand that this is a very broad revolution, and that you must unite with everyone else to take the movement forward. Lenin, you know, shakes hands with them indifferently uh, and then moves forward to address the workers and soldiers delegates waiting and he says we have to make a revolution, that this revolution has to be a socialist revolution, we have to end the war and the chance that go up our land, peace and bread. And Lenin is delighted by this because it's one of his own pithy slogans. And underneath each word, land, peace and bread, there is a iron pillar, which is Bolshevik tactical and strategic policy. That's what these pillars encompass. And these are very popular slogans. So the officials moan, they think, God, nothing changes. The guy's still the same. He hasn't changed because some of the Bolsheviks gave them to understand that we were all together now and uh, nothing much was going to happen. And Lenin understood that if this moment is lost, there will be no revolution because these jokers who were in power, the provisional government, refused to take Russia out of the war, which was a hugely popular demand, couldn't or didn't have the power, which they could have had, but they didn't, 
to transform the social situation. And it's here that Victor Serge says revolution, uh, that uh, Lenin was a revolutionist at the time of revolution, and that defines a leader, that he knew the moment, could see it, could see what it uh, held, and grasp it and move forward with it. Yeah, exactly. And so Lenin drafted the April Theses, and one shouldn't mystify these too much. He liked writing in the form of theses. Uh, they were condensed. They were very clear. There were no extra words in them. Just mapping out and pointing what needed to be done, what lay ahead, both on the global situation and in the case of the April theses on the Russian Revolution. And here in these theses, Lenin said that the proletariat has to take power. In other words, we are not going to do what the others are doing which is a mixture of uh, passivity and conservatism. Why passivity? Because since orthodoxy says that all we are permitted to have at this moment is a bourgeois democratic revolution, that means we can't, ourselves shouldn't participate in it because we're against the bourgeoisie. So let them do the revolution, and we will then just wait, and when they have accomplished it and developed it, then we will come out and make, the, and make a different socialist revolution. And Lenin says, this is complete and utter nonsense. And as the weeks pass, Two things are obvious. Lenin's views are extremely popular in the factories, not just the Putinov factories, but quite a large number of other subsidiary factories that surround Petrograd. They are very popular with the women, working class women, mm. and women confined to the home because their husbands work in the factory, they look after the kids. They are popular with them. He and making sure that people in his own party understand that he first wins over the Bolshevik rank and file and so you have a situation like this the working class is ahead of the party then the rank and file is ahead of the party leadership and then Lenin finally stands up and tells the party leaders okay what are we going to do by this time most of them have agreed that the April theses have to be adopted. Though when Lenin first came in, they said Lenin has gone mad, what's happening, what's going on, etc., etc., etc. And importantly, the adoption of the April theses opens the door for Trotsky and his small group of extremely gifted intellectuals who've been arguing along these lines themselves uh, for many years to now come in and join the Bolshevik party, thus strengthening the intellectual culture of the Bolsheviks, which was not at its highest level. And I think you put it extremely well in your book, Tarek Ali, that, you know, essentially Trotsky had been saying Lenin recognized in this revolutionary year of 1917 that the nascent capitalist class was so weak and so immature uh, that they couldn't complete the normal tasks of creating democratic institutions, <clears throat> industrializing and all the rest of it. The workers would have to do it. And that's what made the Russian you know, revolution so unique. And we should skip forward, but let's talk you know, from April to October, the state and revolution and the sort of excitement of the revolution before, as you've already, already intimated, there is a terrible war coming to roll it back. Yeah, 
from April to October, there are ups and downs. At one point in July 1917, the workers, or the most militant section of the workers, unorganized by any party, but quite a lot of them were Bolshevik sympathizers, decide that enough is enough and we've got to take power now. Lenin, of course, knowing the situation extremely well by now, is convinced that this is premature because they still don't have a majority in the key Soviets and tries to stop it. But once the workers come out, the Bolsheviks go out with them. There's no question of staying at home, no question of passivity. And this is crushed, and then you have a counter-revolutionary response. Uh, Trotsky's arrested, other Bolshevik leaders are picked up. Lenin is forced by his own party to go into exile, so disguised as a railwayman mm. and wearing a wig in which he looks uh, very cool, by the way. I thought uh, so, too. <laughs> he, he, crosses the, he crosses the border, and from there he carries on pummeling the leadership, saying this is a temporary setback. Nothing fundamental has changed. And by September, as the, the front is totally disintegrating, there are mutinies, there are large-scale desertions, and the peasants in uniform are coming home and very vulnerable to Bolshevik agitation. And it is this Bolshevik agitation, i.e. politics, <laughs> that wins them over and it becomes very difficult for Kornilov and the right-wing generals at that point in time to rely on their own soldiers to carry out massacres when Kornilov's troops are marching towards Petrograd to try and you know bump off everyone and take power in a sort of Pinochet style Bolshevik agitators go out and talk to these guys and say look, do you know why you're being brought into Petrograd? You're being brought in to crush your fellow workers, to uh, crush other soldiers. And the army literally begins to drain away. So it's very exciting. And by this time, Lenin is back in Moscow. Secret meetings of the uh, leadership take place, and they decide this is the day, the 7th of November, when we are going to uh, actually take power. And Susie, people who say this was a conspiracy, I mean, this was the most openly proclaimed revolution in world history. There was no secret. When Lenin was even in a minority and someone said to him in the Petrograd Soviet, people talk of taking power. Is there any party in this assembly that is prepared to take power now? And this short, bald man raises his hand, is recognized, gets up and says, the Bolsheviks are ready to take power now. And there's laughter and merriment and jokes saying, uh, you know, what a joke. By the end of September, a key factor happens. The Bolsheviks have a majority in the workers in the workers and soldiers soviets of moscow and petrograd when lenin learns that this has happened and this is the situation has changed then he decides okay the time is right and they plan the takeover which happens without any violence at all it's very funny one sort of footnote here that the great menshevik historian 
and then Sukhanov, mm-hmm. uh, who has written one of the best histories of the revolution, uh, quite critical of Lenin in some ways, but it's a wonderful history, uh, says that he rang up his wife to tell her he'd be a bit late, and his wife said, I'd rather you didn't come home tonight, there are lots of people staying, stay in the office tonight. And the next day, Sukhanov finds out that the reason he was chucked out is that the Bolshevik Central Committee was meeting at his house to take <laughs> the decision to launch the insurrection. What a great story. <laughs> Tarek, you said something really good here, too, because Trotsky once said, you know, not just that revolutions are the mad inspiration of history, but that a revolution is a fight for the army and the side that gets the army yeah. wins. And here, the whole garrisons were supporting the Bolsheviks. We don't have time to go into all the reasons for that, but maybe for the listeners, it would be anticlimactic to know that the revolution was fairly peaceful. There was really complete. I mean, very few, very few casualties. And Eisenstein's film October exaggerated the <laughs> as if he felt he had to to make a movie of it. But it was a relatively, relatively calm affair, and uh, there was uh, you know great joy in the streets. I mean, lots and lots of things happened. Some of which I've detailed in the book but you know Susie we're coming to an end but one thing I would like to say is what I really despise and hate is that young academics stuck on campuses in Angloland or elsewhere uh, in Europe uh, in America feel they have to discover something new about the revolution and they begin to develop sort of slightly crazy theories like there was no need for Lenin to say these things because the whole party was already in agreement with him uh, or it wasn't a socialist revolution at all just because they have to write another book Mm. they can't say anything that has been said in the past because it doesn't tally with the current mood and they try and find little nitpicking things and new theories which actually destroy the meaning of what that revolution was and this sort of thing leads into a liberal centrist marsh that's where it always ends people start off like this making criticisms and often end up in a very bad way and in a very bad place well Tarek I think that's really says it all and and I should uh, tell the listeners that you know this is a really beautifully written book there's a lot of poetry in it there is um, there's vignettes and all kinds of portraits uh, that you would not expect but are there and they're just lovely it's called the dilemmas of lenin terrorism war empire love and revolution Tarek, thank you so much i was going to ask you to finally maybe we could just finally say the legacy of the revolution in a word or two (laughs) the legacy of the revolution in a word or two is socialism plus democracy that is the legacy that this was a socialist revolution made before its time, isolated in Europe through massacres in Germany of the German leaders of the working class, Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, etc. All the Bolsheviks were agreed on one thing, that if we are isolated, there's going to be trouble. And of course, there was trouble, both internally and with external powers, and the rise of fascism in Germany. Had the revolution taken place in Germany in the 1920s, 1919, 1918, 1919, 1920, the whole history of Europe would have been different. 
And that's a subject for another interview, which I would love to have with you. Tarek Ali, writer, filmmaker, journalist. He is also the street fighting man. He's got many books, but this new one is called The Dilemmas of Lenin, Terrorism, War, Empire, Love, and Revolution. Tarek Ali, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Susie. Always a delight. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.